What's up, Salt City? My name is Jordan. I'm the one who was uh, trying to not tell you how to dress on Easter. Uh, but Kaylee is publicly siding with Drew on this. Can't believe that, Kaylee. Uh, so I'm going to wear my sweats next week in protest. It's not actually true. I'm going to lose this argument. I'm going to wear a suit. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks so much for being here, guys. Especially if you're new, uh, thanks so much. We teach the Bible at Salt City, and we think it's valuable and that it's beautiful, and we just try to say what the Bible says. And so we've been in James, and would invite you to flip to James chapter 4. And James chapter 4 is about sin, which I know you, were, you woke up this morning just hoping that we would spend a whole sermon talking about sin. So you're welcome. That's what's about to happen. Um, but we believe in the truth of God's word. Even in hard truths, we believe that he's trying to love us well. And so we're going to look into uh, the nature of sin, into what causes it, and then what it means to, to turn from it. And this is how James has, has been going about his book. Is it, we, okay, so we tend to think in Western modern cultures, we, we tend to, to think very linearly. And when we are uh, coming to content, we, we want it to have an introduction and then three points and internal transitions and a conclusion. And, and we've kind of done that with our sermons, and that's typically how it works, right? But the book of James doesn't work like that. Uh, and it's actually funny because commentators are having this sort of intellectual argument with each other about how the book is structured and what paragraphs follow which paragraphs. And I think James just doesn't care about that. He's not even trying to worry about that. He's essentially, he has one main idea. And here's the, the main idea of the book is what is authentic religion? What's the real thing versus the counterfeit thing? And he's giving us all of these examples kind of circling around the point, hoping that one of them will just land with you. And maybe a lot of you have heard that expression of maybe people that are, that are trying to identify counterfeit bills, what they'll do is actually study the real thing because then when they see the fake, they'll be able to tell the difference. And, and James has been studying the real thing from his big brother Jesus for a long time. And this is how James funnels through what Jesus has said and how he's lived. And he says, this is what authentic religion is. This is what true Christianity is is that it helps the poor and the marginalized, that it loves people regardless of if they can reciprocate, that true religion tames the tongue, and then third, that true religion keeps itself unstained from the world. And I hope it's obvious to all of us why the question of what authentic Christianity, what true religion is, that why that question is so important. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Like, what are you doing here if you don't care about that question? That's, that's what we're after and today, James is going to get at that question through this lens of sin, specifically the pride of sin and then the humility of repentance. And I think this is in God's timing. We didn't plan this, but God just does stuff like this. I think this is the perfect sermon to lead up to Easter. Because today we look at some of the bad news about who we are and the brokenness in our own lives. But in understanding the depth of the bad news, it'll actually free us up to enjoy the good news next week. But we've also got a little bit of good news today that I'm excited to get to. So um, we're going to be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is connected to the end of chapter 3 from last week. So, so this is uh, what he was talking about last week. He was talking about the wisdom of the world. 
And in verse 16 of chapter 3 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so then in chapter 4, he's going to describe for us what disorder and vile practice looks like. And he's going to describe that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He's describing fights and conflict within the church. Distrust and disagreement and jealousy and selfish ambition between believers, people that are supposed to be a part of the same spiritual family. And this is what it says, chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we're going to get to in a minute what the description of sin is here. But I, I want you to notice the language in this paragraph, because it's absolutely intentional from James, is James is talking about quarrels and fights within the church, but he's using this, this very violent language. So he uses the term quarrels and fights twice, and then he calls it war, and then he calls it murder. So he's using this incredibly violent language to try and wake us up, to get our attention to the reality and the significance and the weightiness of the brokenness that he's talking about. But what's the, so the question is, what is he talking about? What sins are he talking about? Is he talking about when he's calling it warring against one another? Very, quote-unquote, ordinary sins. Seemingly normal sins. The sins that we've been talking about in our relationships, sins of selfish amb ambition, jealousy, bitterness. Like, let's just take those three. Does anybody get out of this room unscathed from those sins? Like all of us can look at at least one of those words and probably all three and say, yes, that's me. That's me in general. That was me this week. It, it's, he's talking about being a little frustrated with your spouse after you've had an argument. He's talking about a little bit of annoyance with a roommate or with somebody in your connection group or maybe, you know, spending time with the certain people in your connection group that you really enjoy being around but not spending time with some of the other people in your connection group. He's talking about a little bit of relational brokenness, some, some bitterness that causes just a little bit of low-grade tension between you and somebody else in the church. And it's those things that, that we tend to just justify, that, that we explain away as just a part of human relationships that don't feel to us like that big of a deal. But this is what James is saying, is when you're a little bit frustrated with your roommate, it's like you're at war with them. When you're angry with someone in your connection group, when you're fighting with your spouse, it's like you've committed murder. He's using the most violent terminology possible to expose the lie that those things are normal in a Christian community. And he's saying this community was meant to be more than this. We were supposed to reflect the image of God. And when you live this way where you're talking bad about someone else in this community or when you're disrespecting someone or when you're in a, a fight with someone, you are degrading the image of God. God's community, it's like the pinnacle of his handiwork. It's this beautiful artistic expression of his character. It, we are like the Mona Lisa of God's work. And it's like, it, and when you're 
committing sin, you're walking up to the Mona Lisa and spraying it with graffiti. If you watch that happen, it would be pretty shocking. It's like you're, you're ruining this beautiful work of art. That's the type of thing that James is saying your selfish ambition is like in this community. Your bitterness is like in the people of God. It's violent. It's destructive. And so what's causing it? Well, he gives us two things. Passions and prayerlessness. Passions and prayerlessness causing this destruction in the community. First, passions. Look again, what, cor- what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he goes from talking about sort of the, the external relationships of, of, of what your sin does to people to this internal war. It says that your passions are at war within you. All of us know what this is like. To want to do something good. To want to be like Jesus. But to have this competing desire in us that's pushing back against that goodness and ends up winning out. In fact, who are the people that you hurt most in your life? Isn't it the people that you're closest with, that you love the most, that you care about the most, that you would want to respect the most? Those are the very same people that you hurt the most. Why? Because your intentions don't win out because there's this passion in you that's warring against the life that you should live and that you want to live because that's what sin is. It's not just a list of broken rules. It's the deformity of your character. It's, it's this parasite that's attached itself to human nature and is, and is trying to bleed us out. It's trying to kill us. That's what sin does. Self-focus starts to kill community as it overwhelms the goodness that you know you should be living in but aren't. But it's not just passions that are causing sin, it's prayerlessness. Look at the second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Over and over again in the scripture, God is begging us to pray and to ask to give, to ask him to give us good things. He's our dad, and he wants badly to give us what is good. But we tend to ignore that in our own prayerlessness. Do you know that you can be rich but still live like you're poor? So I I want you to imagine that uh, there's maybe like a a teenager in the cities that's living on the streets. And and there's a a family in the Twin Cities that that adopts this teenager. And they go through the adoption process and they they finally get to, to bring him home. And they bring him home to their house, and I'm talking, it's a mansion. Okay, there, there's a bowling alley in the basement. There's a, there's a pool outside. Like, this is a nice house. And they're walking him through the house and saying, all of this is yours. And then they go into the kitchen, and they open up all the cabinets, completely stocked full with food. Hey, whatever you need, whenever you're hungry, you don't have to ask. Just come down and get it. But if you do ask, we'll gladly make you something. We just, we want you to have everything that you need or that you want. And then imagine that they go to bed that night and that kid wakes up and he's hungry. And so he walks outside past his parents' bedroom, down through the kitchen with the open cupboards with all the food, back out onto the streets and robs a grocery store for a loaf of bread. 
How sad is that? It's sad because he's settling for something less than what he has. <laughs> and not only that, but he hasn't learned yet that his parents love him and want what's best for him. This is what we do when we go to relationships in our life to try to use them to get the affirmation and the love that we can only find in Christ. As we wake up and we walk past God's open pantry, his open invitation for us to ask him for whatever we need and that he's willing to generously give it to us, we walk past that pantry and out onto the street. And what ends up happening is we try to maintain control in the relationship so that we can manipulate our relationships into things that will affirm us and, and make us feel better. And so it ends up being the opposite of love. It might appear like love, but really what you're doing is using that person in your life to try to prop yourself up, to fill up the hole in your life. But it won't work because it can't satisfy your soul. And God is standing there like, ask me. I want to come through for you. But we don't because we're afraid of depending on him. And so we depend on ourselves and other people and we end up leaving a long trail of manipulated, broken people in our wake from us using them to try to prop ourselves up instead of serving them to love them like Christ would. So we sin because of our passions, because of our prayerlessness. But I think even more unnerving than the sin itself, or maybe equally unnerving, is what sin is. Like the badness of sin. So we're actually given two descriptions in this text of what sin is. The first one is that sin is judging God. Sin is judging God. So you said earlier that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you engage in sin, you're drawing up battle lines and you're putting yourself opposite of God and you're provoking him to anger. So why is it that you're an enemy of God? It's because you're trying to judge God, okay? Which might sound a little bit unfamiliar, but let me read this to you. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, so I want to break down that paragraph because I don't know if it's immediately obvious what he's saying. And I'm not really going to add commentary after that because I think if we just understand the logic of this paragraph, that point will land enough. So the command of the text is the first part of verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So he's saying, don't gossip, don't talk behind somebody's back, not even in your own heart where God sees. Should you be angry with or degrading someone in your life, in particular, another Christian, only speak and think well of other people? Now, why is he giving us that command? Well, the second half of the verse, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks, against, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So if you judge your brother, you're judging the law. So what law is he talking about? Well, James recently has mentioned what he calls the royal law of love, which is the summary of all of the life and teachings of Jesus about how to love people, to pray for those who persecute you, 
to lower yourself for the benefit of other people instead of elevating yourself above them. In particular, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law of love and that is the life that Jesus has said is the best possible life for you to live that will make this world look like him and like his kingdom. But it says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. That's what James has been all about is, hey, don't just talk about things in theory. Don't just claim Christianity. Back it up with your life. Be a doer of the law. But when you hate your brother or when you're in conflict with someone or when you're bitter towards someone, you're not doing the law, but you're standing back away from the law and saying, that doesn't apply to me. Even if that's not what you're thinking, that's what you're proving with your life. And then verse 12, why is that so bad? There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So this is what he's saying. There's one lawgiver and judge, and he gave us this royal law of love. It said to love people relentlessly, endlessly, the same way that he does to represent him. That was his law. But when you, with your life, say, that's not how I'm going to live, you elevate yourself above the judge, and you make uh, yourself a judge of him. And you look down on him and you say, I know this is the way that you told me to live, but I'm going to choose to live differently. When that person criticizes me, I'm going to criticize them back because it's only fair. An eye for an eye. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to stand up for myself. That's a better way to live. So what are you doing in that moment? You're declaring yourself as God, able to judge between right and wrong, and you're judging God's law as wrong. It's a fairly dangerous place to live your life. It's not, in general, a good idea to declare yourself God. That's not going to end well for you. It's not good, but just like for some advice for you, don't try to be God. It's not going to go well. That's what's happening when we're disobeying his law of love, is we're becoming a judge of God. But secondly, sin is something else. It's not just judging him, but it's, it's actually hurting his heart. And the word that James uses next for sin, the word itself should make us uncomfortable. The word's adultery. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Adultery is the betrayal of someone you love the most. And unfortunately, that idea lands way too close to home for way too many of us. Maybe it's been committed on you. Maybe you've committed it on someone that you love. Maybe you've seen it happen to a family member in the way that it just wreaks havoc on lives. It just shatters people's lives. Because of what marriage was supposed to be. These promises to support and love each other and never hurt the other person like that. It bonding yourself to that person. And so adultery is like running someone's heart through a shredder. It just, it just shatters the relationship. Almost 10 years ago now, I stood before a group of people and I made promises to my wife. And I promised her that I would never leave her or forsake her. And she slid a, a ring on my finger that never leaves my finger. 
so, except for right now. Um, <laughs> put it back on before I drop it. But she slid this ring on my finger. Why? So that as I walk around this world, there is a symbol on my body saying that I am not my own. That I do not have the right to do with my body whatever I want to do with it, but that I am hers and that she is mine. It's a symbol that, that we have become one. We did a marriage conference this weekend. It was called the intermingling of souls. I, I, I love that, that wording. I think it describes what the Bible says about marriage so well. That it's this, this mystical and metaphysical union where two people now are one and become inseparable. Their souls become intermingled. And so to cheat on a person or to engage in divorce is, is to, like, to like rip a limb off of that body because it's no longer two separate people. It's just one person. You can't tear it apart. And this is what God is saying. That he married you. It's one of the primary symbols in the Bible of the gospel is that God stands before you and before an audience of the entire universe and he declares to you covenantal love. And he says, I want you, I want relationship with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I always want to be with you. I desire you. I want you to be my bride. I want you to, to come in and I, and I, want, to, I want to intermingle souls with you in some senses where, where you're not distinguishable from me. I want to be unified with you. That is the way that God describes his relationship with us. And how does he describe sin? Adultery. Is that you're running to other loves. You're looking to something else to provide for you what only he can provide. And you're breaking his heart in the process. You've never just broken some abstract rule. That's not what it's about. The rules are a description of the love and character of God. And you're breaking his heart. That's what sin is. And when he talks about this in verse 4, the initial hearers would have been thinking about an Old Testament story. A lot of these verses in the New Testament, they're like hyperlinks to the Old Testament. You click on them and all of this background comes up. And the thing that they would have been thinking about is the story of Hosea. It's a book in the Bible about this prophet named Hosea. And God comes to him and makes this remarkable command. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman. That's normal. The thing that is remarkable about it is that God tells Hosea that that woman will be unfaithful to him. And that God wants Hosea to marry her anyway. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Okay, obviously that is very strong language. Okay, so I did a little study of that word that the ESV renders, whoredom, and it, it's actually the appropriate translation for that word. There's a few different ways that you could translate the word, but the word is trying to describe in the most graphic terms the pain of, of cheating on someone. God tells Hosea to go marry this promiscuous woman. He tells a, Mary, a man of God to marry someone who will be unfaithful. Why? Because he's giving a picture of what God's relationship is like with his people. 
the wife that Hosea marries, her name is Gomer. And Gomer conceives and bears a son. But it's not Hosea's son. It's the result of her infidelity. And Hosea raises that child. Okay, I want you to imagine what that would be like to daily wake up and see a kid that doesn't look like you. And it's a reminder of your wife's infidelity. To walk around in public and watch as other people realize that that is not your kid. The reality of what God has tried to do in our lives is he's looked at us and said, I want relationship with you so that you will image me to the world. But when we engage in selfish ambition instead of self-sacrificial love, we are not imaging God. And he looks down on us and he doesn't see his image in us. And it's a reminder of our infidelity and our relationship with him. And eventually, in the story in Hosea, Gomer leaves Hosea completely. And she goes and she just pursues her adultery, her false loves. And Hosea doesn't even know where she is. And then God comes back in in this moment. And he says this, Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Listen, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. You understand, you are not Hosea in this story. You are Gomer. That's who we are. But here's what God is saying. Is that his character is such that he chases you down in your adultery. He follows you into your false loves because he wants relationship with you. And he wants to woo you back to himself. He refuses to give up on relationship with you. And as this living picture of the character of God, Hosea goes out looking for his wife. And can you imagine what this search was like? Where would he have had to go? He would have had to find the worst places in town and just starting knocking on doors saying, have you seen my wife? Can you imagine how painful that would be? As as he's looking at other men who likely have slept with his wife saying, can you help me find her? And eventually, he seeks her out and he finds her. And by this point, she apparently has become enslaved. So he finds her in bed with another man. And he says, that's my wife. I'm taking her home. And the other man says, not without a price. And so Hosea says, name your price. And he purchases back his wife. The person that was already his and that he was hers. He buys her back. And and this is what is true of you. Is that God chased you down in your infidelity. And unlike Hosea who was required by God to do so. You have to imagine that Hosea would have been conflicted in this moment. He was obeying God but you got to imagine that there was a part of him that's saying no way I'm going to be back in relationship with that woman. I don't want to do this. But no one was commanding God to come get you. He came out of his own free will, out of his own volition, because he desired you, because he wanted you, because you were worth it to him. And he chased you down into your adultery in sin. And then he bought you back, 
not with a couple coins of silver, but with the precious blood of his son. He ransomed you for himself. He purchased back his own creation so that you could be in relationship with him. That is the love of God. That is grace. That is the gospel. God chasing you down into the messiest parts of your life, leaving heaven to walk around earth seeking you because he wanted you. That is what God is like. He's chasing you down. And Hosea carries Gomer home. And he brings her back into his house. And he clothes her. And he starts to treat her with respect and dignity where everybody else wanted to use her for their benefit. Hosea buys her back so that he can heal her. All of your false loves, all of your sin, all of your selfish ambition, it's not for you. It's against you. It's using you. Sin is using you for its own benefit, but God purchases you back with his son because he wants to heal you. What do we do with that? What does it look like to receive that, to respond? Well, look at what he says next. It's that God has given us more grace. Why? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. How do you access this wild love of God? You humble yourself. You don't continue in your pursuit of sin. You don't imagine that you're able to clean yourself up, but you humble yourself. You agree with God about your unfaithfulness, and you come back to him and say, I need healing. I need you. You lower yourself before him, and God responds. He gives grace. He opposes, he fights with the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you humble or are you proud? Are you fighting with God or are you submitting to him? We're going to rapid fire in a second some ways that we can humble ourselves. But I want to just explain something really quickly. I think sometimes when we're talking about grace, we can think of it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. So then, in theory, the way to receive the most grace would be to sin as much as possible, right? Like, just, just go sin and be like, God, I'm sorry, more grace. Sin, sorry, grace. Like, that's how this works, right? No. Paul talks about that in Romans. It's like, should sin abound so that grace may abound? By no means. God himself is grace, And he said the way to live in relationship with him is to follow him, to obey him, to listen to him, to listen to his way of life. And so if you have the first hypothetical person who's just sinning all the time and then just saying, oh, I'm sorry, God, but not really fighting that sin. Or if you have another person who hates sin and is working towards obedience in Jesus, imperfectly, yes, but working towards obedience in Jesus, which one has more grace? Which one is living in grace? The second, not the first. Which one is proud? The first. Which one is humble? The second. So rapid fire, what are some ways that we can humble ourselves? Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Okay. 
How do we humble ourselves? First, you submit yourselves to God. Verse 7. You say no to your passions. Submitting yourself means to bring yourself under the willing uh, authority, to willingly bring yourself under the authority of another. So instead of looking at what you want and what God wants and saying, I'm going to pursue this, not this, you say no to your passions and you say yes to God even when you don't understand why it's good. You resist the devil. You remember that story in Acts where there's kind of these traveling exorcists slash magicians who they don't really love Jesus, but they're trying to put on a show and they meet this demon-possessed guy and, and they try to call this demon out of this person. And they say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, I command you to leave. And the demon speaks back through this guy and says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? If you are trying to resist Satan on your own, you have zero chance. You do not have the adequacy to fight sin on your own. Satan will look back at you and say, who are you? But if you've trusted in Jesus, you have become united with him, which means that his spirit lives inside of you and the demons are terrified of Jesus. They run from him. James previously said that at the name of God, they shudder. And so with God in you, by his spirit, if you resist Satan, he will run from you. He will flee. Jesus is stronger than him, so you in Jesus are stronger than him. You are not powerless. You are not a victim of your own sin. Live differently by the spirit. Draw near to God as much as humanly possible. So yes, get up and spend some time with God in the morning, but don't just leave it there. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that you should pray unceasingly. How's that going? That, that's, like, that's a little bit more than, hey, let's read our Bible a little bit in the morning and move on. Draw near to God in every facet of your life, in every moment imaginable. Reorient your entire life around his presence. Live before the face of God intentionally, systematically. Draw near to God. Cleanse and purify yourself. What sin is living in the darkness in your life? Bring it out into the light and expose it for the lie that it is. Tell somebody in your community this week and start to live differently by his grace and by their support. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. The Bible does tell us to rejoice, to live in joy, but it also tells us to mourn over our sin. When's the last time that you saw the severity of your sin and you just wept? Is your worship growing cold because you're no longer seeing the weight and reality of your sin and therefore you're not seeing the beauty of the gospel? So that's what we should do. But God has given us promises in response. He says, if you resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. Your primary identity is not helplessness, it's power. God says, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. If you come to God, he will not reject you because he loves you. He chased you down in your adultery. Of course, he will let you come back home. Listen to this quote from the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't read it yet, I'm just going to keep reading quotes until you've read the whole thing. If you are a part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. You see that if you're in Christ, your sin isn't you. 
God sides with you as you fight with your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. We understand this, says Goodwin, when we consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease affecting his child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out his heart to his child all the more. And then he ends with this. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Draw near to God. He will not reject you. And then finally, humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. Jesus proved it. The most humbling moment of his life, hanging naked, bleeding on a cross, was his moment of exaltation as king over the universe. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. The defining characteristic of true religion is not moralism, but humility. Not perfection, but repentance. Humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Jesus, we as a community humble ourselves before you. And we, I, am guilty. We have held on to bitterness, we've gossiped, we've, um, we've failed to love each other as we ought to. And in the process, we've broken your heart, we've cheated on you, God. But God, we also believe in your grace. That you offer grace to anyone who wants it. And so God, I pray for, for somebody in the crowd who thinks they're too far gone from you to come back. Let them know that they can come home from people that are caught up in their own pride and don't really think their sin is that bad, that big of a deal. God, right now, by your spirit, would you convict them? Would you show them the depth and, and, and reality of their sin and would it cause them to come running to you? And Jesus, we believe you when you said that you would love us regardless, that you would pursue us no matter what, that you want to be married to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, we take hope in that fact. Even though we've done everything wrong, God, we've broken your heart and we hate it. We come back to you. And we just say, God, help us. Give us grace. We need you. Humble us, God. We don't want to be proud anymore. We don't want to live in sin. We, we don't want to separate ourselves from you. We want to be a community that images you, not, not sin. We want to image your goodness, God. We need you. Turn us into that type of people and help us to worship you now as we should. Amen.